Before we get to David as a priest king, I think that what we need to do with this text is really wrestle with the nature of the heart of God and what God's heart is like. I think that we find that here in the text, the verses that we just had read to us by Rob. But as we think about that, I'm wondering about what your experience with parents have been in the past. Have you ever, for instance, been out somewhere and and seen a, a parent who is being super critical to their kids. Have you ever seen that? Maybe even loud, unrelenting? Uh, I have this show that I've watched periodically, and it's called What Would You Do? I don't know if you've seen this, but they set the stage with some actors who are supposed to do something very strange as they're videotaping, and they try to capture what normal people do, how they would respond, how they would react. And in one of these, they had a kid who was really gifted musically. He went to a a music store with his mom, and he sat down, and he starts playing. And as he's playing, she says, oh, you're terrible. Don't you even practice? Like, it's really just an embarrassment to the family. You've got to quit that. And as you watch, you can see people looking on, average citizens, right, just kind of taken aback that this mom is speaking this way to her child. Maybe when you're thinking about your parents, those are the kind of thoughts that come to your mind. And if if you've had that kind of parent, if you've been that kind of parent, I'm sorry. Um, But we know that what we find is, is that in humanity, the, the normal average person, when they hear that kind of thing, they recognize that that's not the way that a parent should treat a child. There's something in them that even when children disobey, they recognize that there ought to be a kind of mercy with the way that parents deal with children. See, maybe you imagine that that God is is like this kind of parent. Uh, I remember a season of unfaithfulness in my life where I began to envision God in this way. Uh, I, I literally remember at night sometimes I would go to the Lord and I would bow before my bed to pray. And I remember in my mind, I'm kidding you not, because, you know, I didn't know that God could see my thoughts. I, I began to think to myself, oh man, if God only knew what I had been doing, or not even what I had been doing, but the things that I wanted to do that I haven't done, how sinful I am, he wouldn't hear my prayers. And so I would kind of pray about the highlight reel of my life, wanting to be a better evangelist, prayer, that, that kind of thing but would ignore these areas of my life that were sinful because I felt that if I were to bring those kinds of things up, that there would be a sense in which God's anger and fury would drop down on me in an unrelenting kind of way and that he wouldn't hear me, that he would in some ways kind of shun me and walk away. Well, this morning we're back in our series on the life of David. He's an ordinary man who became an extraordinary king who, as we saw in the book, later became a a pretty extraordinary sinner. And that happens all the way up to chapter 11, or 11 to 20, when we find that God is with David, and we have these beautiful chapters of chapter 22 to 23. And and in those chapters, we see that David has this hope of a future king that's coming. But what's fascinating is, when I get to chapter 24 that we're looking at today, I almost wonder to myself, why didn't you stop at chapter 23? I mean, that was a great place to stop. Look, I had a bad season, but here we are at the end, David's last words. And in those last words, David says, I trust that that my God, he's going to bring about this this good, just king who fears the Lord from my line, just as he promised back in 2 Samuel 7. And the future is incredibly bright. And and so we're just waiting for him, the end, but it doesn't end that way. Now we have chapter 24, and chapter 24, we're back in that cycle where it begins and opens up with, again, The anger of the Lord is kindled against Israel. God's angry again. God's people have been disobedient again. And it looks much like chapter 21. You think that everything's been fixed and the future's bright and that's where we're going. But chapter 24 reminds us that David, David still yet, his people have sinned against God. And they are continuing to sin. And God has work to do amongst his people. In fact, that word again that begins our text this morning in verse 1 really, I believe, points back to chapter 21, where again, David interceded for his people, there to push back the wrath of God that is visited on them for the blood guilt of a sin that came because of Saul when he murdered the Gibeonites. But this morning, what we're going to see is this. This chapter is, is full of theology, full of meaning for us, and the way that we ought to be thinking about God and his king. 
And this morning, what we want to think about is what is the heart of God and the heart of God's king like? I want to leave us with that this morning. Our big idea is this, that God and his king are great in mercy. God and his king are great in mercy. This should be encouraging. Now, before we get to the greatness and the largesse of the mercy that we find in God and his king, we first need to deal with some difficult issues that we are confronted with in the very beginning of our chapter where we find that the Lord incites David against Israel. The Lord is, he's inciting David against Israel in verses 1 to 9. So we're going to look into what that means. Before we do, will you pray with me for God's help? We need God's help as we look to God's word. Father, this morning as we are opening up your word, Father, we are here because we long to hear from you. And Father, this morning as we come, we, we want to hear your word that culminates and climaxes in the person of your son, your great king, Jesus Christ. So, Father, we ask that you would give us ears to hear, that you would help us to have hearts that are sensitive, that are malleable to your word. Lord, do this for the glory of your name, we do pray. Amen. Well, the first thing we see this morning is that the Lord incites David against Israel. Now, our text doesn't tell us exactly how Israel sinned against God here again. We just see that the Lord's anger is kindled. We know that it's likely uh, that, that what this means, and, and we know that what this says to us is that there is some way in which God's people are breaking God's law. They're being unfaithful, disobedient. And what follows is really a tough text. So listen close to see, as I read this, if you can point out some of the, the places where questions immediately just erupt in your mind. Uh, so look with me, beginning in verses 1 to 4, what it says. It says, again... Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he incited David against them, saying, Go number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and number the people that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my Lord the king shall still see it. But why does my lord the king delight in this thing? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. And if you keep on reading, what you find in verses 5 to 9 is that they count everyone from Dan to Beersheba just as they're ordered. Joab and his men scour the land taking this census. And a number of important questions arise as we read these verses. I'll try to to limit it to a couple of questions. Uh, The second question is going to open us up to some more questions. But the first was this, was taking a census a bad thing? Even Joab, the guy who's a famous hitman, you'll remember that this guy's been sort of killing everybody. Uh, He's the guy that killed Absalom, David's son. He killed Uriah for David. He's also the guy who killed Ahab. I mean, this this guy is a guy that is not not supposed to be necessarily the mascot for righteousness. And yet he's coming to the king who is supposed to do justice and fear the Lord. And he looks more righteous than David in his perceiving the will of the Lord. Now, scholars are actually divided as to why this census is wrong, even though it's clear to Joab, and it's clear in the text that it's sin, you have to ask why it's not a good idea. Well, we know that some say that it's wrong because he had bad motives for taking this census, and others say that his method for doing it was wrong. He didn't do it right. You're not supposed to do mail-in counting and all that kind of stuff. But I think that we could find an important clue in verse 9 as to why this was wrong. Did you notice what happens when Joab returns after taking the count? What we find is he responds to to David with his numbers, and he says, in Israel there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000. Did you catch that? What David was interested in in this report was tell me how many valiant men who wield a sword we have. Now, we're a long way from that shepherd boy who in chapter 17 
went to fight the mighty giant Goliath. When King Saul, who put his trust in the sword, offered David his sword, and David said, I don't need the sword. My slingshot's good. I don't go out in the power of sword or spear, but in the power of the Lord. And that's the way that he took down that giant and everyone that was to come. In fact, in 1 Samuel 17, 45 to 46, he speaks to the Goliath, this giant of the Philistines, and he says, you come to me with sword and spear, but I come in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel. And this day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand. His confidence in chapter 17, uh, chapter, one, uh, chapter 17 of, of book 1 is in God. But here we are in chapter 24 of 2 Samuel, the very end, and he's counting swords. Now, we don't want to conjecture too much, but you wonder if in this moment, Israel has kindled God's anger to this point. And they had a good run under God's spirit-anointed king. Their territories are expanding. The fortifications of, of, of Jerusalem are growing. And their confidence is growing with with the promises that have been made to the people of God. And yet, slowly, you wonder if their confidence shifted from trusting their Savior God to trusting their swords. To catch this, there's, there's nothing wrong with making wise plans in this world. It, nothing wrong with it. There's nothing wrong with planning for future retirement with 401ks, nothing wrong with uh, homeschooling your kids because you don't like the, the trajectory of where education might be going in schools, nothing wrong with buying alarm systems for your home, taking vitamins, working out, maybe even wearing face masks. Nothing wrong with that kind of stuff. But we all know that subtle drift that can take place in our hearts when we begin to trust more in our guns than we do our God. And that's exactly the kind of thing that it seems that Israel has done. And the kind of thing that the king is doing as a reflection of the nature of the people that he rules. See, we're in trouble if our confidence against our enemies shifts from the power of the God of the heavenly armies to ourselves. And when Joab looks more righteous than King David, we know that Israel is in a bad place. But there's a second thing that I ask here. Not only is the census wrong and and yes, it is here, but did God cause David to do evil? I mean, you can't miss it. God incited David against Israel. And, and there are a couple of complications here. Uh, the first is plain. It might sound like incite is evil. Well, if that's not hard enough, let me make it harder. Uh, if you look at the parallel account in 1 Chronicles 21.1, 1 Chronicles 21.1 has this event. It records the same event. But listen close to if you hear anything that's somewhat different. Here's what it says. It says, Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. Now the number, the, the same word for incite is, is used in both places. Suit, it's a Hebrew word. But Samuel says here that God incited, and First Chronicles said that Satan incited. The, the word is the same in both. But here's something that's helpful. Both the word incite in 1 Chronicles where it attributes this action to Satan, which might lead you to assume that God is in some way authored evil, it is used elsewhere in 1 Chronicles. So I, I want to think about this, uh, this, this problem that seems to arise about the nature of God and his position to evil here and elsewhere really quickly with four questions that might be swirling around in your minds at this moment when you read those two verses together. So here are the four questions. First, does the word incite mean to do something wrong? In short, here's the answer. Not always. Not always. In fact, while if you look in uh, 1 Chronicles 21, Satan incites David, you can look over to 2 Chronicles 18.31. And in 2 Chronicles 18.31, it's the same Hebrew word that's used to describe God's actions for Jehoshaphat, a very similar situation where he is, as the king of Judah, in danger of the Philistines coming upon him. And we're told there that God incited or drew the enemies of Jehoshaphat away. There it says, and Jehoshaphat cried out. He prayed to God when he was in danger. When he saw that his swords were not enough to save him, he looked to God for protection 
And the Lord helped him. God drew or incited them away from him. So incite, it, it doesn't always necessarily mean evil. But I think this raises another question. And that is, does the Bible contradict itself here? Right? I mean, if we see in one place that Samuel is saying, God incited. Same event, Chronicles is looking at it and says, Satan incited. Do we find a contradiction? Did Samuel or Chronicles get it right? Did God or Satan incite? Now, this really isn't a Jedi mind trick, but both are true. Now, now let me explain. Uh, this is really, I think, just a great place to sort of pull over the bus and talk about how to read our Bibles, right? When you see these apparent contradictions. Now, now here's the way that, that we ought to be thinking about it. Uh, I love what Charles Hodge had to say about apparent contradictions, about how we should read our Bibles. Uh, Charles Hodge was uh, what might be one of the greatest American theologians uh, that we have produced in the 19th century. And he had this to say about the Bible in volume one of a systematic theology. He, he said this. Listen to what he says. You can read along. It says, if the scriptures be what they claim to be, specifically the word of God, they are the work of one mind. And that divine mind, from this it follows that Scripture cannot contradict Scripture. God cannot teach in one place anything which is inconsistent with what he teaches in another. Hence, Scripture must explain Scripture. Right? We're, we're looking at the Bible. We're understanding how things fit together. And if a passage admits of different interpretations, that only can be true one which agrees with what the Bible teaches elsewhere on the same subject. So did you catch that? We, we read Scripture with Scripture. We, we don't abandon the rest of the Scriptures to, to find some strange uh, sort of theological belief. And we call that the analogy of faith, reading Scripture with Scripture. So if we apply that here, we need to ask a third question. How did both God and Satan incite? How does that work? See, God's not the author of evil, but God is sovereign over evil, including Satan. Let me say that again. I just want to make sure we're together. God is not the author of evil, but God is sovereign over evil, including Satan. Now, Job 1.12, I believe, provides a helpful picture of how this works. Satan there, you remember, he comes before God, asks permission to bring suffering upon Job in many forms, and that he would turn on God, Job would, if God allowed Satan to do this. And the Lord, he looks at Satan, and he says, Behold, all that he, being Job, has, I am placing it into your hand, only against him do not stretch your hand. Now, did you see that? God is not the primary cause of evil. Satan says, let me take stuff away, let bad things happen to him. And God keeps Satan on a short leash. He says, here's the limits of where you're allowed to go. And Satan sought to take Job's children, his wealth, his health, and he's only left with a wife who tells him to curse God and die. But he's thinking, thanks for leaving me that way. And God allowed all of this, but he did not allow Satan to take his life. And in the end, God restores the fortunes of Job. But catch this. Good, God is good. God does not do evil. Evil never impedes God's decreed will. Like we're not sitting on the sidelines wondering, man, in the end, I don't know how this game is going to go. I mean, the Patriots are down, but they always win in the end, right? They always come back. No, we know the way this game ends. God wins. Evil will not triumph over God. See, the Bible never presents evil or Satan as a legitimate contender to God. Now, God sometimes permits Satan and sinners to disobey his revealed will, like Israel did to kindle God's anger. Now, God didn't say, like, I'm going to make you make me angry. I'm going to make you be disobedient. No, he, he permits that. And yet, we know that while God does not author sin, we find that he is still sovereign over it. Romans 8, 28, one of the great promises to believers, right? 
that God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. What are all things? All things are at least evil things. And then, of course, all those other promises that come in the scriptures in the new covenant. See, this is good news for those that God has promised an internal inheritance. It's good news that God is sovereign over all things, including evil. Because, because God is sovereign over all these things, it means that God has promised us an eternal inheritance that we cannot lose. That we can be sure of this. That he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. And on that great day when faith becomes sight and Jesus Christ returns, that we will receive the glory that's been promised us. See, those aren't promises that exist in a possible world that we are hoping comes to pass. That's a promise. Those are promises that we can count on, that we can rest our lives on, that we can face death trusting. Why? Because God is not evil, and evil can't surprise God or thwart his decrees. I love the song, Whatever My God Ordains is Right. Whatever my God ordains is right, he will never deceive me because he's good, he's not evil. He leads me by the proper path. He's not trying to get me lost. I know he will not leave me. No one's gonna pluck me out of his hand. I take content what he has sent. His hand can turn my griefs away and patiently I await his day because it's coming. Do you, do you see that? Fourth question, though, you've got to ask here is, does God cause David to sin? Now, we're not David, but you might wonder, because David is different than us. He is God's Messiah who prepares the way for his greatest, greater Messiah, Jesus. But David's still human, and you wonder if David, in this situation, it might seem that, that God has tried to incite David, and maybe he's tried to incite you to sin. Well, I hope the answer to that fear that maybe you're fearful that God would incite you to do wrong is a resounding no, that God would not do that to you because of his nature and his character. I love what James 13, 1, 13 to 14 says. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured, enticed by his own desire. So when we sin, we can't say that God made me do it. Satan made me do it. The, the wife that you gave me made me do it, right? No, when we sin, we know that we have sinned against God. We have chosen to violate his purposes. That's the choices that we freely make. Here we see that Samuel coming before us, wants us to know that God is sovereign even over these things, and yet we are culpable. Think about this. If we aren't carefully holding some of these realities in place, we can have a harmful way that we interpret our lives and the world around us. See, Samuel is wanting us to see. He presents God as sovereign, and as we will see more, Israel and David are responsible for their sins. Both things are true. See, God doesn't interact with David and Israel as though they are robots. Like, hey, I know you sinned, but you sinned because I made you sin, and so you're not culpable because you, you, know, you didn't have to do that. No, it says here that, that they are held responsible because they are responsible for their sins. Now, I know that there are a lot of different views about this. There's been a lot of discussion about this uh, at large in Christendom, even in our local church recently. You know, there are some that, that believe that God can't see the future. I mean, he can't promise that this story is going to end the way that he said because he can't see the future. He doesn't know what's going to happen. That's open theist. There are others that say that your salvation is contingent and dependent upon you being able to hold fast and choose, and it's not based on the grace and love of God that anchors your soul. Now, that would be more of an Arminian position. That he looks in the future, and he is reactionary to what we do in an ultimate kind of way for salvation. And there's some that hold that traditionally and historically. And there are others that believe that God has, has chosen to save some. And all of us were destined to go to hell because we are all sinners by nature and by choice. But that God chose to save some by his infinite mercy and grace because of the great love with which he loved us. Because grace and grace alone. But you need to know that even in those camps, 
They're, they're disagreements about the nature of, of how humans make decisions. Some uh, come from a, a perspective that uh, everything is kind of already decided in a sense that uh, God is so sovereign that not one decision that you ever make is not in some ways been sovereignty governed by God. I recently was helped with an article that Steve Doby, one of our members, gave me, and uh, you can say his name Doby as well. It's not like that, but I think it'd be funny to do. He'd appreciate that from now on if we just did that. With this last week, he gave me this article by Richard Mueller, a guy out of Calvin College, and it was super helpful. And, and what he argues in this article is that, you know, there's a, a strain of, of Reformed theology. Uh, that's a position that, that I hold to. We have people in different places, but I, I hold to that. And in that, and in that strain, uh, there are some, and he would say the historic, traditional view of, of Reformed theology, like Calvin and Francis Turretin, would say that, yeah, God is absolutely sovereign over decreed wills. His will will be done. There's nothing you can do to change or thwart that. But humans make free choices. There are, there are choices to be made that there are consequences, real meaningful consequences to in this life. And then there's another strain that he would argue that, that Jonathan Edwards sort of encouraged, and I love Jonathan Edwards in a lot of ways, but he says that Jonathan Edwards really pushed for a kind of view of God's sovereignty that was so deterministic that it's as though there is no break in the line and, and sort of uh, line of making decisions between God's sovereignty and humans and all they do, both good and evil. And, and I would say that, that we need to be careful about that, whether or not he's reading Edwards right to ever say that God causes us to do evil. God's not the author of evil. God is altogether good. All that comes from him is good. Everything that comes from him is actually not just good, but perfect in all of his attributes. Now, there are dangers on both sides when you're thinking about the sovereignty of God and, and our responsibility as humans. Please hear me, there, there, there are dangers. If we think that God is so sovereign that our moment by moment decisions don't matter, you will become what I would call a, a theological nihilist. And by that, what I mean is, is that basically whatever I do just doesn't matter. And you're going to live like it. It's going to be a cold, sad life. God did not make us to see the sovereignty of God and say, well, I guess the world just doesn't matter anymore. He, he created a world in which he is sovereign over so that his creatures could leap and dance with joy over so good and glorious a God who is worthy of worship and to be lived for, not just today, not just tomorrow, but forever. But there's another place that, that, that we will go if we begin to think this. We will begin to believe that evangelism doesn't matter. Prayers don't matter. Personal holiness will grow cold and dead along with joy in Christ and his people. Now, I can't tell you. I've had people before that have been like, oh man, you know, we've heard the pastor is reformed and um, I don't know if he believes in evangelism. I'm like, I beg people to come to Jesus every Sunday. Do you think I'm faking it? Do you think I decided, oh, you know what would be a fun vocation? Pretending like it matters if I invite people to come to be saved from the sins. Trust me, there, there are better jobs. Less emotional baggage. But there's another danger. If you begin to think that God is not sovereign over all things, you will begin to think that your methods and self-worth and your own power are more important than you should. And eventually begin to doubt that he who began a good work in you really not only will, but can bring it to completion. Do you, do you see that? Or, or that nothing can separate you from the love of God. It's actually a hopeful thought, not a promise that can be counted on. Or that God wins in the end. Or that the hope of heaven is a promise God really can keep, or the many other new covenant promises that are made to God's people. And here's why this matters. God is sovereign, and we are responsible. I love how Jerry Bridges puts this when we're trying to put these things together. He says, you know what the relationship between God's sovereignty and our responsibility is? It is a dependent responsibility, right? I mean, Philippians 2, 12 and 13, where it says, work out your salvation, with fear and trembling. See, that's our responsibility. We're called to do that. We're commanded to do that. But then he grounds it. He doesn't stop there. He grounds it in the very next verse, verse 13. For it is God who is at work, catch this, both to will and to act for his good purposes. Do you see that? He's, act, he's actually got a sovereignty in our wills and an action in that, an action in our activities, the things that we do with our hands. 
mean, that is a pervasively sovereign God. And so we are dependent. We, as we're trying to obey God, let me ask you this. When you are looking to obey God, do you pray and ask for help? Do you believe he can? When you pray for the salvation of your lost children night after night, do you believe that he can save them? I do. I beg him. That's the nature of, of I think, the kind of reality that we see here in these, these verses about the nature of God's pervasive sovereignty and yet the responsibility of humanity and David and, and Israel. But notice second, and here's where I believe the, the text really begins to become sharply focused. See, David chooses to fall in the hands of his merciful God in verses 10 to 17. Let me explain how we get there. Notice that David, he again, he confesses his sin before God. And God incited David, and yet David sees himself, his desires, as responsible for this sin. He doesn't say, you know, God made me do it, the devil made me do it, gluten made me do it, or that wife you gave me made me do it. He doesn't do that. Look what he says in verse 10. He says this. It says, but David's heart struck him after he had had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. I don't think that word's there for an accident, this word foolishly. You'll remember, if you look back in 1 Samuel 13, 13, that Saul acted very foolishly when he he offered up an unauthorized sacrifice. He was wanting to go fight the Philistines, couldn't offer it himself, decided to do it because he was getting nervous about the swords all around him. And in that moment, Samuel says, you have sinned, you have acted foolishly, and you have lost the kingdom because of what you have done. Here we find that David, the hope of Israel, the hope of the nations, has acted foolishly. So you wonder, what is God going to do? I mean, is he going to scrap this plan again and start over? Well, notice how God responds here differently. He sends another prophet, Gad, and Gad comes to David as he has come to him before, and he says, I've got three options for you. You choose. Choose your own ending, right? Maybe you've read those books before, like where you can like choose three different outcomes, and it's like, oh, this sounds like fun. This isn't fun. He says, here are three options. Three years of famine on your land. Three months of fleeing your foes, or three days of pestilence or plague in your land. Now, let me just be clear. I don't think this is a theology for all plagues, but there are some theological truths that we can learn about our plagues here. We're not going to go there, but we've got plagues. We're experiencing a plague, just kind of ironic. And so it says what, what we find is that we find David has to choose one of these options. And David only chooses not to fall into the hands of men. Like, he says, choose one of the three. He says, can I just choose the one I don't want? And here's the one I don't want, the one where I'm fleeing my foes. See, I've done that like most of my life. I, I spent a lot of time running from Saul. I spent a lot of time running from Absalom. And what I found is, is that humanity is not kind or merciful or restrained in their justice. They're not perfect in those things like you are. And so whether it is the famine or whether it is the plague, I would rather have those at your hands than these foes fleeing me, I mean these uh, foes fleeing me like I've seen in the past. Why? Well, look at what he says in verse 14. He explains it. Then David said to Gad, for this reason, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord. Why? For his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. Don't miss this. David sees the mercy of his omnipotent God is greater than that of sinful humanity. I mean, God for him is striking. He says, God, you are, you are altogether greater, not just in your justice and in your wrath, but in your mercy. See, David sees the mercy of his omnipotent God is greater than these sinful humans. David, he sees the merciful eyes of his father, even in his discipline, because of the great covenant promises that God made to him. 
even in his wrath and his discipline, when he looks into the eyes of his father coming, he's still looking into his face and he still sees mercy in his eyes. Is that the way you see God? Maybe your, your vision of God is, is, is not quite complete. I think all of us are working on that. But don't miss this. He is looking at him as a father. Have you ever had a child that's come to you for discipline? Anybody had that? My kids never disobey, so it's great. I don't have to worry about that. But what about you? Yeah? I was jo- that was a joke, by the way. Um, but have you ever had that experience where they're coming to you, they know they've done wrong? They're not, they're not even defending themselves like they normally do. They're just like, this is going to be bad. I deserve it. I can't even think of a defense. And that's pretty bad when I can't think of a reason that like, I shouldn't get punished. And they come to you with, with fear in their eyes. And they're guilty. And they look you in the eyes as a parent. And what are they hungry for? Just a glimmer of mercy. Like, will, will dad still love me through this? Has this caused his love to abandon me? Is he going to deal with me like a son? See, they want justice. Kids do when they've been sinned against, don't they? And they'd love to give you some options as to how you can really bring about good justice. But when they've sinned, they long for mercy. Take note of what happens in verses 15 to 17. Here's what it says. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel, a plague from the morning until the appointed time. And there died the people of Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand towards Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, it is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. And then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, behold, I have sinned, I have done wickedly, but these sheep... What have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. See, God sent a plague for an appointed time of three days where God's wrath struck down 70,000 men. And he did it with a sickness unto death for sin through the angel of Yahweh. Angel of Yahweh in the Old Testament, he reflects the presence of the Lord. But take notice here. That this devastating plague, it is not outside of God's sovereign will. Do you see that? Samuel's taking pains to note that it's not just a physical sickness, but there is something spiritual that the Lord is working through it, that his hand is over it such that if he says stop, it will stop. This looks terrifying, but everything about this text emphasizes the mercy of the heart of God. And his king even as he's pouring out his just wrath. For one, take notice that God intervenes before the appointed time reaches its full. How long was the appointed time? Three days. Very good. And yet, we're told that he's not done yet, the time's not up, but as he raises, the angel raises his hand against Jerusalem, it's there before the time's up that God says what? It is enough! Stop! Did you see? Just when the angel drew near to Jerusalem that the Lord relented from the calamity and told the angel that it was enough to stay your hand. See, as God moves to Jerusalem, the city of David, mercy floods out of God and his voice bellows. It is enough. If, if any of you had a day like that where you're like, man, life is hard. I wish God would just declare it is enough. It feels like enough. Anybody had that day? This is that day. Times 70,000. And it's in the midst of that that God stops it. But did you also see the heart of God's king as he too sees the devastation that the angel is visiting on his people? Did you notice that? So God sees the angel, he responds. David sees the angel, he responds too. David confesses again. But this time, he confesses as the good shepherd. And did you notice that he is asking to lay down his life and his father's life's for the sheep 
so as to speak, it's a picture, saying, I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. Now, don't forget how the story began. How did it begin? Again, the Lord's anger was kindled against who? Israel. Because Israel had sinned. And here's God's king. As the one who is standing as, a, in a sense, a representative, a kind of representative for the people of Israel. And Israel's sins kindled God's anger. These sheep, they're not actually sinless. In fact, if you read the history of Israel, you'll see that they really weren't ever sinless. It's just a, a history of, of breaking God's law. Their sins demanded God's just wrath. We need a God who's just. God's justice is good. God's mercy is good. But how can we come before God as sinners if he is fully just and fully merciful? Here David says, let me take the just punishment that they deserve that they might receive mercy from you. He says, strike me to heal their wounds from this fatal sickness. Now here's what's fascinating. Catch this. Both David and God respond as they see the angel striking Israel. And I think it's hard maybe to see this in English, but it's almost as though you see God's king and God looking on this just wrath being poured out, and both of them almost either simultaneously or right after God relents, we find that both of them respond saying, please bring mercy. So why does the author have God relent before David repents or confesses? Well, I believe it's trying to emphasize, Samuel wants to emphasize something about the nature of God here. Uh, David Firth in his commentary, he explains it this way. The order of the presentation is vital. God first, then David. Because it foregrounds Yahweh's mercy. While acknowledging the role of King David's confession. Now do you see what this highlights? The heart, the heart of God and the heart of his king. They are both hearts of mercy. The king isn't like competing with God saying, hey look, I know you're an angry old God and I just want to tell you about this cool thing we've got down here on earth called mercy. No, this is a scene where we find that God is merciful. And if he is going to have a king after his own heart that looks like his heart, then his heart will be a heart of mercy for the people of God. So the king is a reflection of the character of God coming after him, displaying what came before him, God's very character. See, bad shepherds, they beat and eat sheep just like their false gods do. But good shepherds lead, feed, heed, and lay down their lives to protect their sheep from external enemies and even their own sin-sick hearts. And David looks so much like Moses here interceding for Israel back in Exodus 32. You remember that event? Exodus 32? Moses is up there like getting the, the law of the covenant. Great promises have been made to God's people. They're going to be a holy nation, a royal priesthood, display the glory of God to the whole universe. And he's coming back with this. And they've made a golden calf and broken the, the ten laws even before he's gotten down from the mountain with them. And God's anger breaks out and He's ready to, to, to blot them out, to get rid of them and start over. And it's in that moment that Moses comes between them and says, have mercy. And it is Moses interceding and appealing to God's covenant and the promises that God has made that pushes back the wrath of God. He intercedes for his people. Don't miss this. This picture punctuates the largesse of the mercy of God's heart and the heart of the king who is after God's heart. See, the author wants us to know that mercy was God's character before it was David's character. In Psalm 51.1, we know that David saw this in the midst of his sin that caused, like, you know, the whole story of First and Second Samuel to explode, 2 Samuel 11. He, he cries out, Have mercy on me, O God, according to what? To your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Not because of who I am, but because of who you are and your great promises. Don't forget them. I might make you want to forget them. Don't forget them. 
And God's mercy comes out of his covenant faithfulness. And God takes the sinner's side against his sin in this moment. He doesn't abandon the sinner. He doesn't say that that I am done with you and, and send him away, but instead he takes his side against the sin. And that's the heart of God and God's king. For those who are in covenant with God, that's God's posture towards you. Christian, we have a greater Christ than David. We have Jesus Christ, the God-man. I'm just wondering, as as we're closing with a couple of applications this morning, if, if you know what Christ's heart is for you. I've been reading this excellent book, Gentle and Lowly, by Dane Ortland, that has been just a sort of a warm blanket for my soul as I have thought about Christ and his heart for his people. I'm wondering if you know about Christ's heart for you. And maybe this morning it's hard for you to think about, or maybe you're trying to think about it through your sin. It's that sin that makes you question Christ's heart from you. You're struggling with addictions to pornography. Or perhaps you feel like a failure as a mom as you're trying to sort of halfway like homeschool your kids and whatever it is that everybody's doing at home right now with computers. And you're feeling like a, a failure for all kinds of reasons because it's not going well. Maybe you have a short temper and you've said things as a husband that you wish you could take back. Maybe you worry too much about money. Money for retirement, money for rent. And, and you, you need to turn from sin as a Christian. We need to repent and turn. If we we love Christ, we love the things that God loves, we'll learn to look like Christ. We were made to look like him. That's what humanity looks like at his best on all cylinders. But my question here is how do you imagine the heart of God in those bad moments, in those dark moments? How do you imagine Jesus? Christian brother or sister, do you imagine looking into the eyes of Jesus, desperate to see mercy, in your sin, but only can see an angry God abandoning you. Here, Romans 5.20, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more for those who are in Christ's covenant. We have hope. In, in that book I mentioned before, Gentle and Lowly, Wortland says, when we sin, catch this, this is going to shock you, the very heart of Christ is drawn to us. Did, did you hear that? When we sin, the very heart of Christ is drawn to us. Now, when you're in sin, you're probably thinking, I'm going to be abandoned my friends. I don't want to tell them my sins because they would run from me. And that's the posture of Jesus and the posture of people who love Jesus. But that's not the posture that we find throughout the scriptures. Where sin is increased, grace abounds all the more. Uh, Puritan Thomas Godwin, uh, Goodwin, he closes his book, The Heart of Christ, beautiful book, reflecting on some comforts that come to Christians knowing that Christ himself feels pain in our sins and sufferings. We are united with Christ in such a way that he, he feels our very experiences. And here's what he says. He says this, there is comfort concerning such infirmities. Now, this is a long quote. I just want to warn y'all. Longest quote I've ever read in church. You're like, really? I tried to cut out some, but at the end, you're disappointed. Well, we need to talk to you about your love for Jesus. But listen to this. This is what it says. There is comfort concerning such infirmities. That would be sins and and sufferings. And that your very sins move Jesus to pity more than to anger. For he suffers with us under our infirmities, and by infirmities are meant sins as well as miseries. Christ takes part with you, and he is so far from being provoked against you, as all his anger is turned upon your sin to ruin it. Yes, his pity is increased the more towards you, even as the heart of the Father is to a child that has some loathsome disease, or as one is is to a member of his body that has leprosy. He hates not the member. For it is his flesh, but the disease, and that provokes him to pity the part affected the more. What shall not he make for us or make for our advantage? When our sins that are both against Christ and us shall be turned as motives to him 
to pity us the more. The greater the mercy is, the more is the pity when the party is beloved. Now, of all misery, sin is the greatest. And while you look at it as such, Christ will look upon it as such also. And he, loving your persons and hating only the sin, his hatred shall all fall, and that only upon the sin to free you of it by its ruin and destruction, but his affections shall be the more drawn out to you. And this is as much when you lie under sin as under any other afflictions. Therefore, fear not. That glorious, glorious promise to God's people? Does it surprise you that Jesus is that way and he's that way for you who are in Christ? Christian, do you see how much greater Christ's heart is for you than David's heart was for Israel? I love Hebrews 7, 25, the promise that we have about the kind of intercession that Jesus makes for us. There we are told Jesus is able to save us to the uttermost. Greater salvation than what we read about in 2 Samuel 24. Those who draw near to God through him, through Christ, since he always, always lives to make intercession for you. You know, Jesus is praying for you right now. Like you might be like, man, I haven't prayed in months. Jesus is praying for his children. He is interceding always for them. He is able to save you to the uttermost. Not just because of what he did on the cross, but what he's doing right now, interceding for you into that last day when we are received into glory. And if you're a non-Christian, I know there's a lot here, theologically and otherwise, but do you believe that you owe anything to your creator God? Do you believe that you are a sinner who deserves God's just wrath? I think if you do, it's a grace of God, that you see the world in that, that kind of clarity, who God is and who you are before God. Do you know that the mercy that you desire when you are guilty against God or others, it actually, I believe, reflects the heart of God who created you in his image? See, God is perfect in justice and in mercy, but don't miss this. Mercy triumphed over judgment at the cross. That's where Jesus, our King, satisfied God's justice and absorbed his just wrath for all of us so that you might receive the mercy of God if you put your full faith in him and the fact that he lived the perfect life that you did not, died on the cross the punishment that you deserved, and was raised from the dead to declare that if you put your faith in him, you will be saved and no longer an enemy of God, deserving of his wrath, but a child who has nothing but an inheritance and a future that awaits the beauty of the cross is that when God sees you in Christ, because of the cross, he no longer looks down and says, it is enough. Now, when he looks at the cross, he says, it is finished. It is finished. The work that I have come to do has been done. You are now children of mine in Christ. The inheritance, the promises, they are yours in Christ. So that Christ's enemies might become children of God. And if you've done that, if you've put your faith in Christ this morning, you want to do that, talk to me. If you're online, live streaming, you can like message us. I don't understand technology, but just let us know and we'll work that out. There's no better time than today to put your faith in Jesus Christ. Isn't it good to know that we have a merciful God? In his mercy, glorious. Let's pray to him right now.